I think somehow along the way, people have lost the idea that they're at the service of people. You can talk all you want about, oh, the role of architecture, the role of planning. The role of architecture and the role of planning is to listen to people. <laughs> and how do you teach not just expertise and skills, but also humility? I'm Ayushi Roy. I'm Susan McDowell, and this is The Move. So, you know, a lot of times when we're thinking about these issues mm-hmm. of community engagement and involving people, you know, we're focused a lot on, well, what's happening here in the United right. States. Right. But there are folks, you know, in other parts of the world who have been doing this just as long, if not longer than we have, and have a lot for us to learn from. Yep. So I met this guy, uh-huh. town a few months ago, and he's from South Africa. Spends a lot of time looking at kind of South-South relationships. Publisher of this thing called Cityscapes, which is really setting up this dialogue, you know, this kind of South-South dialogue between planners and designers, kind of people of color who are having their own conversations about these issues. And so I've been fortunate because Tal and I have been, since we've met, we've been meeting about every week. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I remember looking at a couple issues of Cityscape that I took off your bookshelf. Um, Yeah. And they were amazing. I mean, they're these beautiful you know, really thick, actually bound booklets. And I remember finding so many incredible interviews and conversations between designers in different places across the South. And I remember just thinking, this isn't a conversation that I get to read very much on campus when I'm in a classroom. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think one of the things that's really, it really pulls out really well is that it shows that these designers, Uh you know, that are having these conversations, which are not just about design, but they're also about politics, right. have a really different way of looking at design right? and thinking about its importance right. in the built environment. Right. And I think actually giving even breath to the people in a city in a very different way, because the city is an organism. And I, I loved the way that the magazine called that out. Yeah. And here's Tao. My interest is, like, I think, especially the professionals, they've forgotten that cities are not buildings, it's people, <laughs> you know? So I'm sort of like very interested from my perch, which has been in Cape Town the last 12, 13 years as part of the African Center for Cities. You know, we're very interested in sort of this idea of how do you talk about people before you talk about buildings. So that's sort of like been a lot of the drive of the work we've been doing. It's been very much around how do you put to the center the voice of people that otherwise are voiceless? And how do you get them to actually talk about the city they want? Because in most cases, it's now become something that professionals feel like they're the only ones competent to talk about. Mm. It's really fascinating. And, and I kind of wonder like, how, we, how we even got there. I guess there's a whole history of how we got there. I mean, it's part of colonialism, a whole series of other things <laughs> that got us there. I don't know why I asked that question. <laughs> it's a lot of isms, <laughs> you know. A lot of isms got us there. <laughs> But it's, I mean, for me, it's just fascinating, you know, how these same kinds of professionalization of fields continually lead us to kind of leaving lots of people out of conversations that are really essential for them to be in. And knowing nothing, and I do mean zero, nothing about the professional landscape, you know, in Cape Town or other places, like, what's the general dialogue? What's the practice like? South Africa is interesting because it's 25 years later still recovering mm-hmm. from uh, this history. And there's been very little change in terms of like who are the professionals. 
So typically, the room I sit in in Cambridge, if I'm in any official capacity, meeting, whatever, is not different from the room I sit in as a black person in Cape Town. So the distance that was there as part of the system, the apartheid system, still exists because the people that are actually doing the work, the policy space is very integrated, but the professional space is not. So you do have this really interesting gap between the people that have got, in quotes, the skill to tackle some of the problems that the, the country has. You know, if the infrastructure, housing, South Africa's got a big housing problem, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So even if you go into like a university, I'm primarily based at the University of Cape Town, or at least I have been, the larger number of experts is going to be uh, to be white. And this is like 10% of the population essentially has the larger <laughs> say and role in defining a lot of these things and actually defining the approaches and what needs to be done. But it's people with the skill. So you cannot fault people for having a skill that can be useful. The question is then how do you, as the system transforms, hopefully as we all hope it transforms, how do you create different ways of having the conversation and not just leave it to the experts because the experts led us there. Apartheid was a, it was a special project. It was a project around how do you divide and use space to divide people. So how do you get into it in a very different way? So for me, those are the questions that I'm interested in. And a lot of the people I work with, I think are interested in those same questions too. And uh, just uh, one other thing is that uh, it's a pattern that you see repeated in many other places, only that it becomes an elite. Mm -hmm. There's an educated elite versus like the rest who do not have an education. So then where you can talk about it in racial terms in South Africa, because it's got such a unique history that you cannot ignore that. In most other places, it then just, just becomes a question of you have an elite that is disconnected to the masses. So it's an interesting place we're in. And do you find that we can look at both of them, both in those countries where it's the issue of the elite or in South Africa where it's the issue around race? Mm. Are you finding that these professionals are recognizing there's an issue and want to do something but don't know how? Or are they just blind to it mostly? And then my third question in this is, what's happening with the younger black professionals who are moving in and what's happening with them? I mean, what's their work like being in that space? Oh, but I've got to say, for me, one of the most exciting things that I've noticed more and more about, I've spent a good bit of time across Latin America, across South Asia, across South Africa, Africa and stuff like that, is that there's a young generation of people. The race doesn't matter. They are very, very interested in these social justice issues. They're interested in sort of like how do they operate within but also outside of a system that's like very established. So I think a lot of people have got an interest in, uh, as a matter of fact, what's been really interesting to me is how many people I have known about my age that have got are coming out of architecture and planning and that are getting into politics because they just feel like they have to. You know, I've got a friend now that's running for senator in Sao Paulo. He was an architect for a long time. And, you know, it just feels like if stuff's going to change, there needs to be a lot more people like him that are part of the formal system. And this guy has been, I think, is one of 500 people 
that he has been very involved in organizing young people between the ages of 30 and 40 and 40 to run for elections in Brazil this coming election. And unfortunately, you don't necessarily have the same kind of number of uh, young people going into the political space in, directly in, right. in South Africa. But you do have a lot of people that are taking very political stands, that are working NGOs, that are spending a lot of their time outside of their professional work, trying to work with communities. So I think there's a massive interest. And with the interest is the problem that a lot of people don't even know how to go about it. So they go into the work without any kind of solid approach. So it's learning as you do it. Mm. And the question is, how do you get into it without acting as if no one else has done it before? You know? <laughs> That's a lot of the target of our conversation to begin with. And it's, that resonates with a lot of the conversations that I know Caesar and I have had even in the start of this podcast is how do you define a space that's never been defined before? And I think that's, in my mind, a big part of the power of social justice to begin with, right, is all these people organizing for a reality that we've never really seen mm. and that we still kind of like the science fiction fantasy believe in wholeheartedly enough to dedicate our time both maybe outside of our careers or in our professional lives to. And I really like what you said about redefining expertise. And I would love to hear a bit more about that, understanding what does it look like to no longer only work with this professional class or listen to the voices of this more orthodox professional class, which aligns with race in South Africa, and instead redefining what it means to be an expert in your community, in a topic area, by centering the voices of people who may not have this formerly elite style of education or work experience, but definitely know and have experiences and skill sets that aren't recognized in the existing system. You know, I think, one, I'm all for skilled people doing skilled work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, how do you, as a skilled person, humble yourself to other people that understand and live in a very particular reality that you can never solve unless you're coming out of that reality. Mm -hmm. So more than I like the idea as a maybe as a much longer goal of trying to redefine expertise. I think that's very important. As a matter of fact, there's some uh, really interesting work that the Indian Institute of Human Settlements in Bangalore and Delhi have been doing around this idea, around how do you define expertise, you know, like they actually use exactly that phrase, so you should be talking to them. <laughs> and I think the question is like, how do you get humility back into the professions? I think somehow along the way, people have lost the idea that they're at the service of people. And for me, those are the things that interest me, that you can talk all you want about, oh, the role of architecture, the role of planning. The role of architecture and the role of planning, I have this constant running conversation with a bunch of people, is to listen to people <laughs> and how do you teach not just expertise and skills but also humility for me that would be a really really great start because at the moment i think you know you get a piece of paper which enables you to do a whole bunch of things and then i think we've got this culture where people then take that as essentially affirmation that they know more than <laughs> the people they are meant to serve, except if those people are clients that pay money. <laughs> you know what Oof. I mean? So <laughs> yeah. right. we're having a straight up conversation here. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Th that's how I feel about it. And that's for me is if I have a mission in life, it's sort of like working against that. 
and all the work we do and I do with a whole bunch of other people is sort of like primed around that idea of how do you change those attitudes. Like a servocracy. What if, I'm just thinking, right? Like what if in this hypothetical, fantastical world, the people that served the best with the greatest humility, with the greatest respect for who they were serving were at the top of this totem pole. And that's what elite meant. But humility doesn't make you a superstar. Absolutely. Right, right, right. Not a self-serving humility. People want to be superstars. They want to be superstars. So it's a a much deeper cultural set of issues then. But I think part of the thing about humility, though, one of the things that's different about it is it requires you to be in relationship with people, right? Mm. You can't have humility and be out of relationship. You have to be in relationship, right? And one of the problems a lot of times with not just the professions but worldviews is that somehow you can move through life and be non-relational, right? That you don't have to be relational. I was just reading this book the other day that someone gave me. It's called Indigenous Research Methodologies or something like that, Mm -hmm. but it's about indigenous research. And Mm -hmm. the interesting thing about it is is at the core of all these indigenous models of research is relationship. Mm -hmm. And that you can't, Mm -hmm. everything is about the relationship and honoring the relationship. And that then just makes you really Mm -hmm. do things very differently. So... I think this thing about humility makes a lot of sense. I think it's really true, and I also believe that, as I said, but it requires us to want to do the work of relationships, and then I think we're pretty bad at it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That takes that takes more time. No one pays you money to make relationships. Yeah, right. you know, it's uh, it's an extra, it's an add-on. Well, and uh, our thing is networks instead of relationships. Yeah. You know? But also networks are very extractive. Yeah, very the extractive. The idea of right. networks is like, you know, what's this person going to do for me? Yeah. So even the language, I think, yeah. is problematic. Yeah. Because I, I don't know how we all ended up like uh, speaking like management consultants, <laughs> networks, and all this sort of asset like language. As, you, know, you know what I mean? Capacity like, building. What is that? Uh, what, what is this other thing? Case studies. This right. is all stuff that's coming from some bullshit business schools. Yeah. You know, and, and somehow we've adopted it. Right. My favorite is when they talk about relationships as social capital. There you go. I'm like, really? You, know? you had to even take something <laughs> as beautiful as a relationship yeah. between two yeah. people and add a financial yeah. Yeah. jargon yeah. to yeah. that? Yeah. And turn it into a, a commodity. Right. Yeah, it's a commodity. You right? know, yeah, yeah. For me, those are the, and I hope you guys with the network are. So the network that you guys are, we're not going to call it a network. You, you know, we need well, a, we need not anymore. I'm throwing yeah. that word out. The civic we, design relationship set. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. We, you know, we need, a be, we need a better term because we've been having this conversation, Caesar, as well, that I'm very interested in starting very similar, not necessarily right. similar thing, that it's not necessarily just aimed at civic design. It's much more around people that work in the built environments across the global south. How do you get them to learn from each other, know of each other? So I've been struggling as well, like we know with the terminology, it was network and then it was like, oh no, and then (laughs) it was community and then it was like, there's just something dirty now about that word for me too. (laughs) You know, so I'm struggling with like, what is the language that is very genuine and authentic, but that's also not too Mm. pretentious or promising the earth. So I guess we're going to go through this mm-hmm. process together. And uh, <laughs> well, we kind of, you know it's interesting because we we struggled with this a lot when mm. we were you know first thinking about this whole effort to build this peer learning side and this podcast series around it, and we finally just to change the name to both. We call it now the move. 
you know, that's... What's the move? Yeah. You know? Because people, that's what it is. We're Keep moving, it a question. We're moving something in the world, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, kind of yeah, like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. I was talking to somebody, Emmanuel Admasu. He's the global fellow at RISD at the moment, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he said the most beautiful thing, which I am confessing on tape that I will use as if I thought of it myself. He, <laughs> he spoke about how in the design process that he's been doing with both in his teaching but also in his practice, he said, we're trying to come up with an architecture that operates in incomplete sentences, which uh. I thought was beautiful. Mm. You know, wow. and I think applies to a lot of the the stuff we're talking here, that the questions, as you're saying, it's yes. better mm -hmm. to work with questions yeah, and not with answers. Now my mind's gone in a thousand different directions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's incomplete sentences. You know, yeah. That's yeah. going to stick just, with me. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So you've been here in beautiful Cambridge. <laughs> it's been very cold this year, colder than we no normally have. Yeah, uh, it had to be the for longer air. than it has. Yeah, I'm here. It's the air that it gets colder. Than and, <laughs> and you've been in these, these two institutions that are kind of like known around the world in the architecture and design yeah. spaces of both of those yeah. places. What are you seeing about us? Oh, God. Uh, I take the fifth. Is it the fifth? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, no, no, no moment. Why no, are you no, putting him up? <laughs> oh man, I, it's 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 been interesting. Oh, one I have to say one thing about the U.S. that I've always loved is that people are interested in getting things done in a way mm. that is very different from most other places. You know, mm. there's a capacity to get things done. You got there's a ton of smart people, actually tons and tons between Harvard and MIT. And I've just enjoyed being in that soup, you know, like just right. being completely immersed in sort of like that world. I, I'm in a university situation as half my body sits in a university. In my general life, I work a lot with academics. I mean, this place is exceptional just in the sense that to have like a place that is such a magnet globally for people that are trying to think about, let's be generous and say how to make the world better. is <laughs> 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 incredible. Um, but at the same time, I have been disturbed by certain things that I didn't know about the, the U.S. without, you know, I've been in the U.S. many times over many years, like for a two-month period, three-month period, but, you know, I've not been completely just been here. So it's been really interesting, like, you know, like how people talk about certain things. And in a class here at MIT that I was like taking part in last semester, and we're talking about the prison system. So that for me has been the biggest shock of my life, how people have weaponized <laughs> justice mm. <laughs> and how almost like a failure to talk about it outside of the profit and loss equation and how even the most progressive people at the end have said to me, but Tao, this is America. What you don't understand is that business just works so much better in these kinds of things and it can't be left to the government. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. So those things have been interesting <laughs> to me, like how you guys have created a system here that just is so convinced that uh, everything is solved with money and with business. It's crazy. But at the same time, it's been amazing. You know, so having said that, I don't want to insult my hosts, and this is not meant as an insult. It's just like, for me, it's been the most interesting observation. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't take it as an insult, as, <laughs> as, a, as a keen observation, because, I mean, that's our duality in this country. Mm -hmm. We see good things about it, that it's really powerful about mm -hmm. it, and things that are really bad and horrible about it. Mm -hmm. I remember when we did this campaign, you know, you know we do all these kind of question mm -hmm. campaigns, and I... And then one of them, <laughs> we got this long thing back from this brother who's in Chicago, and he says... 
His question was, why is it that I love the country that treats me so bad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, there it is, right? It's like, I love this place and it just it just treats me so bad, you know? <laughs> there's, uh, there's that uh, f- 50 Cent like a lyric, I love you like a fed kid love cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's bad for you. It's bad for you, but great. I love you. <laughs> right, exactly. But you guys as Americans, what are the biggest issues that you guys have? Obviously, I'm turning the table now. Part of this civic design project and mm-hmm. work that you're doing is meant to address a set of things that you guys, you know, what are those things for you? What are the main concerns? The concern you mentioned about efficiency, but at what cost mm-hmm. is definitely front of mind for me. Yeah. And one of the values that I know I bring in wanting to do this work of civic design or civic redesign is exactly that, actually. It's infusing a set of values-based or ethics-based understanding to the work of design or the work of what's now being called like human-centered design or design thinking mm-hmm. and taking that approach. The one thing that I really struggle with, design, <laughs> design thinking. Design but, thinking. But please carry no, on. No, <laughs> I, I struggle with it as well. Yeah. And I use that in double sets of quotes because I think what this body of work or style of operating such as design thinking, the way it's been coined, the way it's been redone, and the way it's been really commodified by a variety of different industries and organizations is so deeply harmful, and yet it just runs free Mm. without any critique or questioning. And I think that's what I personally am trying to do here is add a question mark (laughs) to the way in which we even use that kind of framing or that kind of philosophy in approaching work. Because that work is currently, I believe, so immoral. Mm. And it feels a little inappropriate. So, (laughs) but in a country like the U.S., which has got this like crazy diversity, right? Mm -hmm. Can you ever come up with a set of values that on some level are quite global and can work in every aspect? Because for me, it's something that I obviously struggle with. I try to, a lot of my work is very sort of like it's spread across the global south. And this idea constantly, it's like, oh, but what is the sort of values you're working with? And do they really translate across time and in spaces? And if you claim they are, are you then not defeating the fact that you're claiming to respect the local? So how do Uh you guys deal with that? I think this values question is really important. I think sometimes we get it wrong. And the way I think we get it wrong is that we treat values as if they're discrete. And they're not. Mm. What's happening, I think, is I can say we probably mostly share the same values. But those values, each one of them has a continuum. Mm. It's the trade-off we're making between values. Yeah. It's where we differ. Yeah. Yeah. And often what happens, we don't have a conversation about the trade-off. Because if I have a conversation with you about the trade-off, then I at least know that you're holding the same value that I have. But in this situation, the trade-off you're making around it is very different. So I could have the value that says, I believe everybody should be able to have free speech and talk whenever they want to about whatever they want. And I also have the same value is that people should not have to worry about being verbally attacked Mm -hmm. if they're in a public space. Mm -hmm. Those are two instances of something where we fit on that can be very different Mm -hmm. on that continuum Mm -hmm. of those two values, right? But we probably both believe both of them. Yeah, yeah. Right? We believe both of them. Mm. But where we are on them at any point in time. So part of it for me is trying to understand what are those sets of things and what are those continuums that we're working on Mm. and having the conversation about that as opposed to 
is it this value or that value? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that general humanistic kumbaya thing, mm-hmm. I also <laughs> think there are some things that are really have to be, I think, in society sometimes. Maybe there are sacred kinds of values that we have. I think some of those may be more aspirational in some sense. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if aspirational is the right word. It's what you were saying before, Ayushi, when you talk about living in the space of transition, like there's something that we want to be in the world. And we live in a world that's a certain way and we won't automatically get to that other place. We will live in this transition where mm-hmm. both things are true. We have to support this crazy world we're in while we're creating something that's really different than it. And I think that that can lead us to feeling a lot of craziness. You know, it's kind of like Richard Pryor, you know, you know, comedian Richard Pryor, Richard Pryor would say, yeah, I went down to the prisons to do a show because I wanted to go down there and hang with the brothers and stuff and, you know, just really kind of support <laughs> my people. He said, I walked out, damn, I'm glad they're prisons. <laughs> <laughs> now, what he was touching on, though, in that is like, there's some people who've done some really bad things in the world, and I, mm. I want to be protected from them. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what he was yeah, saying, yeah. you know, and it's like, and at the same time, I know this system is bad and it's messing over a lot of people, and I want to figure out how to support and help them. So you have to live with that. Yeah. We're mm. both of those at the same time, and that's what's hard. I think that's so hard as we try to create a world that's more inclusive, and how do you live with what seems to be really competing values yeah, and contradictions. Because yeah, yeah. that's really what But also are. for me, what is the order of those yes. values yes. on a personal versus a community basis? Yes. If you're struggling to pay your rent, <laughs> what does that do? How does it shift your values? You know, how does that shift your values? Shift uh, trade-off. But I also had a question for you guys, seeing that you're in this space, the role of protests. I struggle with this too, like even in in South Africa, that we have a lot of civic processes rely very heavily on public protest. But also in South Africa, weirdly, the other is very reliant on the court system. So it's always to get the government accountable via getting the courts to affirm what government responsibility is. Uh, So how do you figure like protests coming into this whole thing? Because that seems to be like the ready, tried and tested way to... You know, in a democracy and society, people should be free to protest, right? Mm. I think it's a way that people individually and collectively can make demands yeah. on the system. It is a form of speech, right? And yeah. I really do believe in free speech and that folks should be able to take to the streets. And sometimes when the government is way out of line, the only way you can get it to do something different is for the masses of people to not participate anymore. And mm. protests and getting to the streets is a form of that. But I also think that a lot of times that happens because even in the midst of good intentions, our institutions actually don't know how to engage with people in a way that's authentic and lets them have a voice right through the day-to-day. And I think if we did more of that, we'd have less of stuff happening in the streets. Or we'd have—I think we'd have a different kind of thing happening in the streets. Maybe that's what I want to say. I don't want to say it's more or less of anything. But, you know, like right now, we're in this really interesting place where— Everyone's in the streets about everything. And so the space of protest is like so crowded. What does it mean anymore, right? We have in this country, I think, a really poor record of solidarity Mm -hmm. because you you were talking before about, you know, those values, you know, what's the order they come in? Well, people can be a little bit aligned politically, but they, they fight here. They fight in the order of what should be important, what should be included. But getting back to this broader issue, I believe that, and this is why we, we're really interested in this work, is there are opportunities to open up 
public space in a very different way, in public conversation in a different yeah. way. And if we don't do it, I think we're going to find more in the streets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the reactions from the institutions are going to become more harsh. Mm-hmm. Right? The mechanisms that we have in place now, the ways public conversations are going now, do not lead to a good outcome. That's kind of the way I look at it. You yeah. know? And particularly in our society where you have two things going on. You have the use of money as a vehicle to control agendas, and you have the use of media as a vehicle to control messaging. And that gets used by all kinds of groups in all kinds of different ways, and some have really powerful tools for it and some less so, that we have this really fractured nature of ourselves and that we have to figure out some mechanism to actually do something different. And I think we have these institutions that, even though I think it's fragile, Mm. There is a connection that they have some responsibility to the public. Because of that, I see them as institutions of opportunity for actually building and strengthening kind of public voice and democracy mm. that we have to take advantage of, yeah. you know, and really change them and really go after those spaces to make them something different. Because I think the alternative is not good. You know, I think the alternative is just more what we see happening now, which is there are causes of the day. Yeah, yeah. The system yeah. is still mm-hmm. shutting people out. And how do you become productive? Because I was thinking, actually, this morning, this is one of the stories that's been up is uh, Starbucks guys. You know, these two guys that get arrested, arrested and led out of Starbucks because they're like, in, you know, it's... Because uh, they're sitting. They're sitting there. And then two days later or a day later, the CEO of Starbucks comes up, says, this is not our policy. This is like a situation that escalated very badly. Apologies, he says he wants to meet with these guys. So very, very impressive as far as I'm concerned in terms of like the response. And I don't even drink coffee, so I'm not talking up Starbucks for any other reason. (laughs) And then I was fascinated, like yesterday I was looking at some, you know, like online and whatever, there are all these protests at Starbucks all over. Mm -hmm. And one of them (laughs) was this black lady maybe late, mid-40s, holding up an A4, A5, uh, that's letter to you guys yeah. and your modern system. That's written, legalize black. I was like, that's, that's got nothing to do with Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> She's clearly got a whole other set of issues here that she needs heard. And she is sort of like, mm. just sort of like swept into this. So how do you become productive? Mm-hmm. And how do you become strategic? Mm-hmm. For me, is a question. And if you're talking about civic design and engagement, et cetera, et cetera, question that I always find interesting is, can you get a civic system in place that does not have the forms of traditional leadership that we're used to, that do not have people mm-hmm. strategizing, mm-hmm. saying this is the agendas, da, 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 da. So it's something that's flat. And is it productive? Okay, so a couple of ways to answer this one. One is I think we need to figure out some new systems. But Mm. I'm always careful when we throw hierarchy out the window. Mm. And here's why. If you live your life relationally Mm. in the context of community and stuff, there are natural hierarchies that emerge, right? And there are things that, like, in some societies and cultures, you can start to see, like, how one learns to respect elders because you say there's something here that someone's gone through that I need to pay attention to. It is a hierarchy. Mm. So I think the problem is not to say, like, everything has to be the flat and everything has to be the same. I actually think that buys into a Western concept Mm. that Mm. is actually not sustainable. Mm. Mm -hmm. But I think it's more about 
the undue authority in some systems of hierarchy where certain people have so much power out of balance and out of proportion that make the hierarchy always lead you to injustice. Mm, mm. So I, I don't know if it's all about like everything's got to be the same, everyone's got to be the same. Mm. I think that's not quite right. Yeah. I think there's something else that needs to be in place that makes it much more balanced. And whatever that is, it's probably never static. Mm. Right? <laughs> so it doesn't get entrenched. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's dynamic yeah. in some ways, but it happens. And I think the only way you can do that is going back to what we talked about before, is about creating these systems and these means for people to be in relationship, because that starts to change things. Yeah, because I think the question of, in these new civic redesign processes mm-hmm. that you guys are, what is leadership? Mm-hmm. I think is a very key one. Mm-hmm. And I'm still to hear a good, competent, clear answer. Mm-hmm. Good effort, Caesar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I've just been dissed on my own show. Whoa. No, no, no. no, 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 no Aren't we just talking about the importance of questions? You know, I just want to reflect on that moment we had. Uh, I don't know, Chow. This is looking too good for you. And, you know, I concede. <laughs> But I think, you know, for me, that's very key. Like, just if you could just define, because inadvertently, an effective civic process requires effective contact with power. And power is very well-defined hierarchically in terms of, like, what is the right form of leadership that is democratic, that is diverse, that is all these things that you require. Isn't that a very key Block isn't that almost like the floor you're standing on? Because you cannot, can you deal with it after the fact? And the values that we're talking about, that you're trying to push a set of these values, etc. Who has determined that those are the values? Essentially, the person that has decided those are the values is the leader, right? I don't necessarily think so. Yeah, and I think the yeah, and I think the question that you're asking about what leadership looks like mm. applies not only to what I'm assuming you mean as these formal figures of authority or formal powers or formal leaders. But I think it also applies to informal seats of power and Mm. informal leaders and authorities, which brings us back then to the question of solidarity and organizing and balancing those two. Something that I think we all touched upon but haven't necessarily had the opportunity to dive into is understanding the balance between creating solidarity, creating the opposite of myopia, whatever that means, and organizing, not just the cause of the day, and still maintaining the kind of fervor and energy that is needed among groups of people to organize. And I think that's really difficult because being a formal organizer myself, I'll be the first to concede that effective organizing requires you to keep your hands up like a boxer. It requires Mm. you to have an oppositional perspective on the world and to constantly have this fighter mindset. And I think that very fighter mindset can then lead to not solidarity. (laughs) It can lead to hierarchies that do give undue authority within movements Mm. and then lead to the breaking of movements or the redefining of movements that maybe aren't the healthiest in the long term. And those considerations of leadership, I think, added to the question that you're asking. So not just leadership in the formal ways, but also leadership at the civil or civic or I don't want to use the word community, but (laughs) the the mass in the people's seat. It's an interesting thing for me because some of the more vocal social movements in South Africa, in Cape Town in particular, they're very personality-driven. Mm. This, like, big figure 
is the lifeblood of these movements. And it's very oppositional, mm -hmm. always. They mm -hmm. require almost like a built-in is the idea of a nemesis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of then mm -hmm. defines how they respond, how they deal with any situation, mm -hmm. and these very formulaic responses. So just to add on to that, your idea of the civic network, that word, strike that <laughs> word, uh, they'll do some genius stuff in editing. The intent, I think it can travel very, very far. Mm -hmm. Because I think there's a set of questions in there that apply very, very easily. So tangentially, mm -hmm. this is what I've actually been wanting to come to. So my question about how do these values travel is something that would be very, very mm -hmm. interesting to, and it's a conversation I would love to keep having with you guys. You mm -hmm. know? It'd be great. I think what I want to say as we get toward wrapping up is that leadership question you asked for me that's part of i think why we're doing this is we think there's there's a new line of leadership emerging mm. and how can that new line of leadership equip itself to actually create better processes and opportunities for voice in democracy mm -hmm. because if they don't do it i think that's where we have to strike right yeah. i think there's that group it's like your friend you're talking about who's running, you know, mm -hmm. after architecture. Mm -hmm. What would enable him to have a set of ideas or tools or ways or imaginations mm -hmm. that then allow him to say, we can do something different here about how we're bringing the public into mm -hmm. this conversation? Mm -hmm. and I think we need that not only in government. I think we need it in lots of our industries and practices because my view is that any profession in any institution who as part of their work has to touch the public, then has a responsibility to build the capacity of the public for democracy. They have that responsibility. And part of what we're doing, and part of what we want to put out there is that you have that responsibility, come be part of this, to figure out how you might be able to act on that responsibility mm -hmm. in a responsible way. Don't, yeah. don't not pay attention to it. Yeah. First yeah. recognize you have it. Then look at the issue that's out there, which is you have this complex public. And three, involve with others and some thinking about some steps you can do mm. to start stepping into that space. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where we are. Mm. This came into my head now. I've got a friend, American actually, but she's uh, based in Congo. And she studied this fascinating project. The idea is how do you get more women in government? So she started this whole project that's essentially trying to find young civic leaders that have been at community level doing all these different things. And how do you get them to build the confidence one and give them the capacity to actually run for public office? I think they are running about six people now. They just nice. launched it, you know, and they're wanting to expand this across East Africa. And I think these guys would benefit from what you guys are doing. But again, that mm -hmm. issue of translation, it's I think, is something that's really important. Because also they're trying to build a whole infrastructure, digital, et cetera, et cetera. So wow. I think there's all this like relationship where I'm coming from, almost like going back to the beginning about my observation about being here, is the fact that you guys here have got so many resources that very useful globally. And the mistake people tend to make is that they always think that the main resource they have is money. So <laughs> people from the other side of the world think what they should be looking for is money. People here think what they should be giving is money. So whereas all these sort of like other infrastructures mm -hmm. that are so much more useful 
And I think it would be really interesting to sort of like start exploring that. And I'm super interested in that. Mm. You know, as I work and get around into all these different places, I'm sort of like very interested in that. Like, oh, where have you done there? And how does it work there? And not necessarily how much money do you have in your pocket and how can I use it for my own thing? So how do you build that idea of solidarity mm. beyond... A profit loss model. Exactly. There are lots of opportunities to start thinking about that. And salute to you guys for taking this on. It's a big task. It's fun, and we're enjoying it. And <laughs> it's great, like, meeting people like you. And, you know, we usually end our show with this notion of... We call it a game, right? We call it a game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is that we are, you know, so grateful to be able to have you on our show and be able oh, to I'm, have... I'm happy to be here. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> and to be able to have the listeners tune into someone who can share the kind of wisdom that you have from your experiences. Ooh, that's the first time anyone has so, ever said I have wisdom. So welcome. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we'd love to end this episode with something that you would be able to share. One thing, one sort of quick takeaway that you think has expanded your, we like to call it a muscle for the work that you do and share that with the people listening. What's one thing that you've learned through your work that maybe you want to clue others into, give them a recommendation for their work moving forward? Oh, I would say just travel to the strangest places where you just go there and you get in and you say, I know nothing. I think wonderful mm -hmm. things happen. Just Humility. Travel is <laughs> it's a gift you can give to yourself and others. For me, most of my learning is stuff I've been lucky enough to be witness to without mm. ever contributing anything to. So I would say that's the biggest thing and what I would recommend everybody. It's not a book, it's not a whatever. Just go places. I like that, and I want to just say on it because sometimes when I know when people hear that, they say, yeah, but, you know, only so many people can travel. But I know you and I, that travel can happen just by going five blocks from where you live. Yeah. Absolutely. It's yeah. about yeah. going and opening yourself yeah. to knowing and learning Completely. from others yeah. that you don't you know. know. Yeah, yeah. Go to, go, yeah. Hey, cross the river, go to Boston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Kyle, thank you so much for being thank with you us. So much. Thanks, Ayushi. Thanks, Caesar. That was great. That was fun. Okay, so Tao just introduced us to a whole new complex world. Yes, he did. Great. And, you know, it really kind of aligns and connects with our whole idea about design for collaboration. Mm -hmm. But in a way, I think, you know, we don't often imagine, which is collaboration not just being about what's happening in the room of people to come together, but sometimes collaboration has to happen between people in really different locations. Mm -hmm. His work around South-South, mm -hmm. really creating designers and developers themselves and being in conversation with each other mm -hmm. to build a whole new kind of way of thinking about engagement mm -hmm. and thinking about their craft mm -hmm. that really responds to a kind of like non-Western position in the world mm -hmm. is a really important part of this notion of designing for collaboration. Right. And also going about it, I think, really authentically. Because, you know, one thing he said that stuck out to me was he talked about community, in quotes, being the sort of new diversity, in quotes. And... I think that really gets to the way in which we've tried to build solidarity and tried to build these services or these understandings across communities and geographies, but sometimes as lip service, really, I think. Yes. You know? Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things that's really was great about him, and particularly as it relates to collaboration, is another way I hadn't even thought about it, right? Because as I said before, you know, 
I always think about it originally in this notion of, well, the people who are involved in the engagement process really need, you need to design it so they're really working with each other. Yeah. But the other thing that he's doing is this kind of collaborative process around the ways in which what people are saying are actually captured, you know, through the magazines, through right. other things that you build these collaborative media supports right. around what's learned. So there's something deeper in this notion of designing for collaboration. It's not just about the collaboration. The act the, of the collaboration, act. Right. 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 It is really about collaboration as really a goal and building really the structures that allow that to happen. That's right. Like a process, not a product as much. Yes. Collaboration yes. is a process, not a product. <laughs>